Hello, and welcome to the first podcast episode of Paint by Murders. I'm your host, narrator, and author, M. Travis DiNicola. Paint by Murders is an original, as of yet unpublished, mystery novel. It's the first in a series of Harrisburg Homicide Mysteries. Each episode of this podcast, dropping once a week, will feature subsequent installments from the novel and will last approximately 20 minutes. If you would like more information about the project or have comments you would like to share, please do so on the social media pages where you found this or email me at paintbymurders at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy the story. Paint by Murders Prologue Date, October 13th Location, the Max Max Gallery in Soho Alan Moonshine enters from stage right, the sound of his cowboy boots striking the tile floor preceding him. In the center of the stage area is a brown leather club chair lit by a single spotlight. Next to the chair is a side table. On the table is an old-fashioned black rotary telephone. Moonshine enters the pool of light. He is wearing a black beret, a colorful African dashiki, tight black jeans, and his famous red and black cowboy boots embedded with crystals and sequins, causing blinding dots of light to flash across the audience as if from a disco ball. He is carrying a wooden box about the size of a shoebox. He sits in the chair, leans back, and props his right foot on his left knee. The box is in his lap, his hand resting on it. His eyes are closed. A slide is projected on the screen behind him. In an uneven handwriting are the words, Cesse n'est pas en performance. Three uncomfortably silent minutes go by before he opens his eyes and speaks. Just so we're clear, I'll tell you what I'm not going to do tonight. I'm not going to get naked. I'm not going to dress like a woman. I'm not going to throw any bricks. I'm not going to break any of this gallery's windows. I'm not going to dance. I'm not going to play the bongos. I'm not going to drown myself. I'm not going to bleed. I'm not going to light anything on fire. I'm not going to cover my body in paint. And I'm not going to cover any of you in paint so you can relax. Laughter from the audience. Tonight, for once, I'm just going to talk. I'm sure that no one is more pleased to hear this than Max, the brave owner of this gallery, who is hosting us tonight despite being advised against it by his attorney and his insurance company. Let's give Max a big round of applause. Applause from the audience. Slide. The same handwritten slide with Cesse n'est pas une performance, but shown backwards. I've been told that Walter Belford was a cousin to my great-grandfather on my father's side or something like that. At one point, we might have had a common relative named Z. Barney. The Z likely being for Zach, but I'll just call him Z. You see, Z made this box. Alan Moonshine lifts the box, presenting it to the audience. 
Z made it out of wood and leather and horsehair in 1871. You can see his initials here, stamped into the wood with tax, and on this side, 1871. This is a seriously old box. It's been through a lot. I don't know why Z made this box, but he did. And then he probably gave it to his son, who then gave it to Walter Belford like 100 years ago. Belford was a baker, living in Scotland when he was hired by the White Star Line to work on their ships. And he ended up as the night baker on the Titanic. Slide. A black and white photograph of the Titanic. Walter had written ahead to the family he knew of in the States that once he got to America, he was going to stay. They were all very excited. After the tragedy, all the newspapers were pretty names of the survivors. My great-grandparents, so I'm told, scoured the list for any sign of Walter. They never saw his name. That fall, a package arrived at their home from the White Star Company. You see, for almost two months after the Titanic sank, there were other ocean liners who would, as they were making the crossing, recover floating corpses and all types of other debris when they were in those waters. One of them found this box floating on the surface. When they opened it up, there was supposedly nothing inside but a small piece of paper stapled to the lid with my great-grandparents' address on it. He opens the box to reveal a small piece of paper stapled inside of the lid. It's still there. You can't read anything on it because it's faded and part has been ripped away, but it's still there. My great-grandparents knew Walter was gone, but they kept his box. And it got passed down, and my father gave it to me for my 16th birthday and told me Walter's sad story. It was a great place to store my pot when I was in high school. Laughter from the audience. I didn't think much about Walter or the box until recently when I started doing some research on a piece I was working on that dealt with drowning, that some of you know. I decided I should find out more about this relative who had died on the Titanic. Except he didn't die. Well, at least not on the Titanic. Walter was a survivor. Slide, black and white photograph of Walter Belford, an elderly man with large round glasses. I was reading the book, A Night to Remember, by another Walter, Walter Lord, about the last hours of the Titanic when I came across Belford's name. His story was that he was working in the bakery late that night when he felt a big bump and knew something was wrong with the ship. Like any sensible fellow, he grabbed a bottle of scotch, took some pretty big swigs, and went out on deck. When he realized that there weren't any lifeboats left, he continued to drink his scotch and jumped overboard. And he kept drinking that scotch, keeping him warm while he floated in the water for hours until he was picked up in a lifeboat. He was one of the very few people rescued from the freezing water. To Walter Belford and his life-saving scotch. Alan Moonshine has pulled a flask out and raises it to the heavens before taking a healthy sip, then sets it on the side table. Whoa, that is strong. I actually prefer bourbon, but that's another story. Anyway, the thing here was that Walter died of old age, not drowning. When he got off the Carpathia in New York with the other rescued survivors, he didn't bother to let anyone know he was still alive. I don't know why he did it, but I suspect he realized that he had been given a gift. Freedom from his family. On both sides of the Atlantic, he was gone to them. 
except he was really living in upstate New York, still working as a baker, until he really did die in 1962 at the age of 92 without his box. Here's another thing, though. Since Walter's story was published in Lord's book, there have been some skeptics who think the whole story is hooey and that Walter wasn't ever on the Titanic. Their argument is that his name doesn't show up on the names of crew members and that he never filed for lost wages like other survivors did. Well, of course he didn't. He didn't want to be found. He was reinventing himself, as I have. The only evidence that Walter Belford was on the Titanic is this box. Ellen Moonshine stares at the box in his lap for a full minute. Of course, that story, the story about how the box ended up in my lap, is apocryphal as well. I'm not even sure we are really related. It's just a story that's been passed down with the box, but no documentation, and it's not like I can go ask my great-grandparents for confirmation. There are no letters from the White Star Line or even any letters from great-grandparents mentioning Walter that I've ever seen, and other than my father, there aren't any relatives left to ask. You see, the only person who might know if this story is true is my father. And I don't know if I can believe him. I want to, of course. I mean, why would he lie to me? Well, I mean, actually, there are a lot of reasons. But maybe he just read about Walter in a book as well. And made up the story to impress a son whom he wanted so much to impress. That seems about as likely as anything else. Only my dad knows. And me not knowing what to believe is making me a bit nuts. Am I really related to a badass baker who survived the Titanic and I'm now the owner of his box? Or is my dad a liar? The thing is, I haven't spoken to my father or my mother for almost 30 years. I'm dead to them. Until tonight. And you get to be here for it. You, my adventurous and discerning audience, will get to vote on whether or not he is lying. You've probably been wondering what the two buttons are that have been installed on the arms of each of your chairs. In just a minute, I'll ask you to vote. Press the white button if you think my father is telling the truth and that I really am related to Walter and that this is his box. Or press the red button if you think it is all a lie. Slide. A large question mark. Ellen Moonshine takes another sip of the scotch and then picks up the telephone receiver. The dial tone is amplified so that the audience can hear throughout the gallery. He deliberately dials, the rotator slowly revolving back into place, making a clicking sound after each number. The phone rings. Moonshine leans back in the chair, the receiver to his ear, and closes his eyes. A woman's voice answers the phone with a, Hello? Mom, it's Alan. I need to first let you know that this phone call is part of a performance. It's being heard by a live audience and is being recorded. Okay, now that that's out of the way, I know it's been a while, but I have to ask Dad something. Can you put him on? Mother, is, is that really you? Yes, Mom, it's really me. Mother, after a long pause. Oh, honey, it... You can't talk to your father. He, he died this morning. Alan Moonshine slams the phone down and walks off the stage. The spotlight remains on. The slide goes dark. 
This transcript is by Patience Gray from the video of Alan Moonshine's Last Night in Soho. Chapter 1 Harrisburg is a cozy city, Keith said to his wife over the phone. It was summer, and he was standing on the path overlooking the Susquehanna River, watching the setting sun in Pennsylvania. A warm breeze came across the water with a light scent of wildflowers and fish. Earlier, Keith had been sent for beer by the other faculty at the summer camp. He wasn't scheduled to teach that day. It was his turn to make the run. On the road, he changed his mind and kept going down the highway until he got to Harrisburg, walked around for a while, and called Ginger. She was still in Michigan where they lived. You're going to love it. It's, it's right on the river, surrounded by green mountains. It feels like a city, a real old city, with some great historic buildings, but it's not too big. It's comfortable and easy and safe. I've been reading about it. I think the population is only around 50,000, but it seems larger. And there are a ton of other small cities and towns right next to it. Hershey, York, Gettysburg, Lancaster, a bunch more. So the population of the area is a lot more. And the state capital is here. So there's plenty of great restaurants and a surprising number of galleries and a symphony and an arts and science center downtown. If you could only see the sunset, you would move out here right now. You could send me a picture, you know, suggested Ginger. Oh, right. Hold on a second. Keith took a picture of the sun going down over the river dotted with pontoon boats and texted it to his wife. You should have it soon, he continued. If we lived here, we would just be a few hours from New York, Philly, Baltimore, and D.C., but we could afford a really nice house close to the river and we wouldn't have to deal with traffic every... Oh, that is pretty, Ginger interrupted his sales pitch when she got the photo. That's a big river. It's about a mile across, I think, but it's it's very shallow, only a few feet deep. What's that to the left? Keith smiled. She had noticed it. That, my love, is the beach of City Island, which has a minor league baseball park on it. Ginger paused for a moment, taking in the idea, and said, Wait, are you serious? You bet I am. They have a baseball park on an island. A baseball park on an island. An island that there's a bridge to it. We could live on a river and walk to baseball games on an island. Okay, okay, I get it. It's everything we've been looking for. But I still need to see it in person. I think I think I can be out there by Friday to take a look. When are you done teaching? Holding the phone with his left hand to his ear while his right nervously pulled on his ponytail, he tried not to sound too excited. My last class is Friday morning. There's a flight that could get you in close to noon. I'll pick you up at the airport and give you the tour. So, you already looked at flights? Yes. And is there a ball game Friday night? There is. And did you get us tickets for the game yet? He hesitated a moment. I may have. Mm-hmm. Nicely done, honey. They chatted for a few more minutes about their plans, and then before they hung up, Ginger said, Oh, Keith, you forgot to tell me the most important thing. That I love you? No, I know that. What's the name of the home team I'm going to be cheering on? Oh, the Harrisburg Mayflies. The Mayflies? Like the bug that lives only for a day? There's a lot of Mayflies on the river. It's a sign of a healthy river. Go Mayflies! I love you. See you Friday, Ginger said, then hung up. Keith stood there a bit longer, watching the final moments of the setting sun 
over the low green mountains. The pontoon boats had their lights on now, and most were puttering back to their docks. He couldn't believe it. Harrisburg was going to be their new home. Keith and Ginger had talked about moving since he quit teaching full-time, but the question was always where. With their work, he was a painter and Ginger a florist, they could live almost anywhere that UPS picked up. He needed to be able to send his paintings to the galleries that carried him in the Midwest and on the East Coast. Keith had taught at the university for over a decade. When his work finally started selling well enough, he decided it was time to quit teaching and paint full-time. It hadn't been easy, but it was worth it. Usually. They were on a tighter budget now and needed to downsize. Why move to a smaller house in Michigan when we could move anywhere? Ginger had asked. If we don't do it now, we probably never will. They were both in their mid-40s and were ready for a new adventure. They listed the qualities they wanted in a new home. Warmer than Michigan, but still with seasons, closer to the East Coast, near water and a baseball park, not too big, walkable, cozy. They wanted to find a place where they could see themselves spending the rest of their lives. Keith loved Vermont, but that was even colder than Michigan. Baltimore had been a consideration. Ginger had some family there. But it and all the other cities near the coast were great to visit, but too big for them. They didn't want to live in that craziness every day. They talked about it more than they looked. And so Keith picked up some teaching gigs again, mainly for the extra money, but also because he enjoyed it. He liked the camaraderie of other artists and of working with students, just not all the time. One of the side jobs landed him in central Pennsylvania for a few weeks, teaching at a summer art school that was more like a summer camp for college students studying art. It was less than an hour from Harrisburg, located in a small summer home community on a lake in the Pennsylvania woods. It was beautiful, but even too small and remote for them to live there year long. Then Keith had gone into Harrisburg one night with some of the other instructors for dinner at Noted, a little wine bar and bistro block away from the Susquehanna River. He immediately felt a connection with the city that he couldn't shake. He found some articles online about it and wanted to go back on his own and see what else the little city offered. He really hadn't planned to skip the beer run. It just happened. Like it just happened, they ended up parking the rental car on City Island. The island sat in the middle of Susquehanna and was connected to Harrisburg by two bridges, one for cars and the other called Old Shaky for pedestrians and bikes. Along with the baseball park and the mile-long island, there was a soccer field, volleyball courts, an arcade, miniature golf, batting cages, a small beach, a marina for pontoon boats, a beach bar, and the dock for the red and white striped heart of the Susquehanna paddlewheel riverboat that featured live jazz on their sunset cruises. Keith and Ginger loved going to minor league games. They loved the game, but also the goofy promotions and the creative ballpark food, such as tacos with shells made of bacon. Bacos! If they lived in Harrisburg, they could walk to the island for games, or maybe Keith dreamed someday they could get their own pontoon boat and dock it on the island. To make that happen, he would have to sell a lot of his paintings. Chapter 2 Friday, at the airport, Keith was thrilled to see his wife at the baggage claim. He had missed Ginger during the past few weeks. She didn't look like a ginger. She had short, dark hair. She was tall, much taller than Keith was, and in better shape than he was, thanks to her self-defense classes. His first words to her were, welcome home. 
They checked into the Harris Hotel and then spent the day walking around the downtown by the Capitol building with its amazing green and gold glass dome, checking out all the restaurants on 2nd Street, strolling along the Riverwalk, and then browsing in some of the Midtown shops, all the while taking note of any townhomes for sale. By late that afternoon, Keith could tell that Ginger loved Harrisburg as much as he did. Their only disappointments came that night at the ballpark. They had walked across the old bridge, understanding how it got its old shaky name, as they could feel it move when the wind gusted, or a heavy-footed jogger passed them, and got to the park just in time to grab a few yinglings before the first pitch. The park itself was great for the minor leagues, intimate and quirky in its haphazard design. Parts were built up high to avoid floodwaters from the river Keith suspected, which gave it even more character. After the first inning, they went in search of food, only to discover that the culinary options weren't quite as expansive as they had hoped. Other than rubbery hot dogs and cold popcorn, there wasn't much else available, especially for Ginger, who was a vegetarian. They were about to give up when they found one booth that sold some Old Bay fries. Keith and Ginger shared the fries and a bag of peanuts for their dinner. Sitting in their seats on the third baseline, she turned to him and said, This will work for tonight. But if we're going to be coming to a lot of games, I can't do this every time. You'll just have to plan on taking me out to dinner whenever we come to a game. If you can do that, then I'm in. Let's move here. The Mayflies beat the Erie Sea Dogs 7-5, and afterwards there was a fireworks show, which somewhat made up for the limited food options. Harrisburg wasn't perfect, but it was close enough. They found a house in the old Midtown neighborhood of Angleton, two blocks from the river and just around the corner from the wine bar Keith had first visited. It couldn't have been more perfect for them. A hundred-year-old, three-story townhome in great condition, with plenty of room for Keith's studio on the top floor. The address, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, would never fail to amuse. But the house was actually a brownstone and not a white house at all. There was a balcony off the second floor where they could fit a hammock and an enclosed patio off the first where they could grill. Both the first and second floor had working gas fireplaces, which Keith loved, and the second floor bathroom had a jacuzzi, which Ginger loved. The one drawback was no garage, just street parking for their trusty and rusty old Subaru. They decided this was a small price to pay since they could actually afford the house. They guessed that a similar house would cost probably five times as much or more in any of the East Coast cities that they could now drive to in a few hours. They moved in September, just a week after the minor league baseball season had ended. Keith and Ginger would have to wait until April to go to another Mayflies game. Other than that, things were going great for them in their new, cozy home. They had no idea how soon that would change. In less than two months, Keith would be suspected of murder. You've been listening to the first episode of Paint by Murders. Come back in a week for the next episode. If you'd like more information about the project or have comments you'd like to share, please do so on social media pages where you found this or email me at paintbymurders at gmail.com. I'm your host, narrator, and author, M. Travis DiNicola. Thanks for listening. <laughs>